The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Working Artist Project. My name is Gregory Ajid. Uh, we're so happy to have you tonight. Um, we have some fortunate slash unfortunate news for you. Uh, tonight, it'll be a solo show with uh, myself and our guest. And the, uh, the my fearless co-host, Mr. Darian Douglas, is currently on the road. And uh, yes, believe it or not, believe, before Darian and I were fully invested in Second Line Arts, we used to have a life full of touring the world and, and playing music and doing all kinds of crazy things. So uh, we wish Darian the best on his gigs and uh, we're looking forward to having him back next week. Um, tonight, we have a very special guest and uh, this gentleman has been taking over the, the world and uh, he's an incredible saxophone player, a wonderful producer, great musician, and um, I've been following his Instagram, so he's also a fashionista of some sorts. And um, he is currently working with one of the hottest projects in New Orleans. I don't know if you guys have heard of a band called Tank and the Bangas, uh, but this, uh, this gentleman here has been working with them for the last couple of years. And uh, actually, I think what I'll do is uh, start off with a little story. The first time I remember this cat playing, uh, his name is, uh, we got Albert Allen back in the house. And uh, I remember it was, a, it was Mardi Gras day, Fat Tuesday. It must have been 2012, 13 or 14 or so. And I remember sitting on the porch at a house party near, um, near Napoleon and St. Charles. And man, it was, it was such an incredible show, but that was the first time I'd ever seen Tank and the Bangas play. And, uh, and Albert was playing saxophone on that gig. And that was eight years ago. And, and Albert and the band have come such a long way in the last eight or nine years that it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. And just, uh, I'm sure it's going to make for an incredible story. And, uh, Anyways, we, we let's uh, go ahead and welcome uh, Albert. Albert, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. No, it's all good. Yo, so how how are you doing, man? What's going on? How's it feel? I'm to, excellent. Uh, to I'm be, just glad to catch up with you because uh, we myself. we were just talking. It's been like <laughs> it, we haven't seen each other in person in a long time. We've both been on the road doing stuff, so it is very nice to see you because you are among the first musicians I met when I moved to New Orleans almost ten years ago. Yo, that is such a crazy, a crazy, crazy thing to hear. And one of my favorite things of being, having, having played the Maison on Frenchman Street on Tuesday nights was that was my opportunity to meet so many cats who were coming to town. I don't know if that was officially where we met the first time, but yeah, it's been, it's been a long time and, and bro, like, I mean, you've come such a long way and I guess we'll, we've come a long way in those, in that time. But uh, man, let, let's start from the top, man. Let's like I would just love to maybe dig dig into your origin story and how how did you get into oh, uh, playing well, music? Well, I, I kind of I, I started playing piano real young, like probably like four. And I'm not, you wouldn't know that I started piano at four. Now I'm one of those kind of you know I you know I can I can play the chords. Um, I don't I don't get around on piano at all. But it is the instrument kind of to which I feel closest. You know, I think about music in terms of the piano. Um, yeah, you know, if I'm thinking about music, if I'm thinking about notes or something, really? I'm not thinking about how it lays out on the 
on the saxophone usually. Usually I'm thinking about um, how it looks on the piano, very visual. The piano is great for that, for visual learners. Um, and I started playing it at four and just kind of, you know, took lessons off and on, used it once I found out about, um, you know, a tribe called Quest and the Roots, used it to learn learn about chords and the harmony that made up these kinds of musics. Um, because uh, I actually I, I had a reverse entry into 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 like um uh, the music commonly referred to as jazz. You know, I like I like I, I started with that music and annoyed my friends with it by like only listening to that. And then I got into hip hop. I kind of like went instead of hip hop. Oh, would they sample? It's jazz. I kind of went jazz. And then I would hear a hip hop song and be like, be like, hold on. Like that's Pharaoh Sanders. What is going on here? Um, and and uh, after piano, I kind of stumbled on saxophone because my dad thought the guy who was playing tenor in the uh, Smooth Operator video, Sade, he just thought that guy was the coolest guy. He had on these like dark sunglasses and these shoulder pads. My dad was very into '80s fashion, I guess, and and he was like, man, you know, you could you could do that. And so I he just we I got a tenor in the sixth grade to play in band just cause. And and it just turned out to be a really good fit. Then I saw that same year. This really like, this sealed my fate. Uh, uh, I saw Kirk Whalen play. He came through. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama. He came through. He played a big concert. He walked through. He had a wireless mic and a soprano and was walking around the crowd. You know, playing the playing the old ladies in lawn chairs. And I was like, okay, you know what? I was like, you can do this. Yeah, I was. I told my band director about it. He was like, oh, you know, you could do that too. And I really believed all that and so i was like i want to make that happen and then i just made it my goal from then on i was like i want to i want to do music in some capacity i kept it vague in case i really uh uh, uh stepped in it and and i was and i so i would always just tell people i just wanted to do something in music you know i knew i wanted to be a performer but i was like trying to cover my bases that's awesome i mean you know it's funny it's like once you, once you see someone playing uh, walking around the audience with their saxophone playing for um let's say more mature women uh yeah you know, <laughs> it, it may spark some interest in our in our young it's, eyes it's a total they 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 they, they, they hoodwink you day. they're like hey in this context saxophone's pretty cool every other context saxophone is not cool <laughs> literally it's cool at the concert practicing not cool neighbors not cool concert very cool <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, did you um, did you go to like an arts conservatory type high school, or what, what was your like high, your high school years uh, studying the saxophone? Like, it, I went I went to the Montgomery version of Noka. Take that how you will. Uh, it was a great high school. It is a great high school. Booker T. Washington Magnet High School. Uh, I love nice. that school. Uh, it's so it, it's such an amazing. It was the only. It was the opportunity I had in Montgomery to do what I wanted to do, to be surrounded by like-minded creative people, um, even to be surrounded by the kind of people I wanted to be surrounded by, people that I grew up with on the Air Force base, um, because Montgomery, Alabama was extremely segregated. If I'd have gone to a private school, um, it would have been all me and white people. But because mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to go to a public school, I got to grow up with white people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, um, I just think that was the the effect that that's had on me and my life as a human, just outside of any career stuff. But just just as a person, I'm so thankful I went to a a school that was creative, but was also so diverse. I mean, that's just like I got the opportunity to gig. We had I was in a magnet called Show Band, and so we played. You know, we played like Earth, Wind, and Fire, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, other bands that had three 
separate names and an Oxford comma. And we got to go around the city and like play. We, uh, we loaded the van, we unloaded the van. We ran our own monitors. It's so crazy that what, I'm, that what I do now, that what we do now is exactly what I was prepared for. It's actually insane. That's crazy. That's, yeah, I always say that, um, man, the way, the, way, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And so a lot of times, I, I guess like high school is a very important time in people's lives because if you ain't doing shit in high school, there's a good chance you're not going to be doing much afterwards. And, and I simply mean that in terms of like how people's like study habits are or like the day-to-day of, of people's lives. And it's interesting to hear you say that a lot of the routine that, that you were going through in, high, in your high school years were very similar to what you're doing these days. Um, and and also, man, I, I have to say too, man, just just speaking from my personal experience, bro, going to music school, going to public high schools, um, being part of music programs, it is such an important thing for, uh, we'll say, middle class white people to take part in programs that are not just like exclusively exclusively for middle class white people. <laughs> Say it. I wish there were. I wish there were uh, eight hundred more uh, folks who look like me and you to hear that here. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't want to be around them in our homes, but I wish they could hear that. Like, <laughs> because that is that is. It's just a perspective. Uh, it's just a perspective enhancing thing and an empathy generating thing. Because if there's anything uh, that white folks have as a racial attribute, it's a it's some sort of lack of empathy. If history tells us anything um, from from immense uh, pain and suffering caused, um, so it's really really good in the formative years, like like you said, like high school, that bedrock. Like, what are you going to be? Um, and also, anybody who's listening to this is in, and is in high school, the thing is not to scare you and be like, "Wow, I'm not doing anything. Am I going to?" Am I not going to be able to do anything? The thing is, this is your time to do something. Um, and, and you should feel, because it's always the case, whether you're 16 or 60 or 80, you always have time to do something. Um, and so, yeah, we are very fortunate to have gone to schools that, that, uh, that exposed us, you know, and, and, and really made us adjust to um, maybe stuff and also music that, that is not ours, that we get to, that we are guests in, you know? It's, it's being a, being a respectful visitor, Dude. you know? Yes. Yes. I completely agree with that. Like I always have seen myself as a respectful visitor within, in, in someone else's home. And I, I totally feel like, and had I, had I had that opportunity later on in life, maybe had, uh, you know, had I not had the same high school experience that I had in, in middle school and things like that, I don't know if my, I would have been as open and receptive and, and understanding Did you know, just again, like just being being in a room with people who are not exactly like you and and this 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 expands like just like culturally in so many ways like people who eat different food than you people who listen to different music who watch different tv shows have different just day-to-day experiences and it's we're it's 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 a beautiful thing to to expand our minds and, and understand that people do things differently and we're all but we're also all the same in so yep, many yep. ways uh, beyonce poops that's right. That's right. <laughs> Wait, what? Not a lot of people know that. No, I'm telling you. No way. I, you know, Come on. I didn't see it firsthand, but <laughs> rumor has it. I, I'm sure if you saw it firsthand, that would be on the front page. Unknown. I don't know. I, I don't want to like riff a horrible headline, but that's yeah. No, that'd be that would be a, that'd be an international incident. <laughs> 
it'd be horrible. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, Beyonce poops, uh, the world ends. <laughs> so anyway, the first time I saw you, I was looking through the glass at, at Mason. Um you, Are you serious? And, I'm so serious. The first time I ever saw you, and then it's really funny, because man, when I moved, and maybe you can, this is such a good opportunity, because I, um, I've, I've done a lot of growth and change. I was a late bloomer. I'll say that. When I moved to New Orleans at 18, I was... I was probably emotionally like 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. And so I had to catch up a lot on a lot of stuff. And one of these things that I remember from that time, and a lot of it is blurry because I felt like every time I went out to sit in, I just had these like blackouts of nerves and embarrassment. So I don't remember all of it. Mm -hmm. What I remember mostly, so I was doing a thing when I moved to New Orleans, I was doing like a James Carter, like avant-garde thing. I was really into like squeaks and scronks and like, how do we make this saxophone sound like anything other than a saxophone? I really enjoyed doing that. I still do. People don't enjoy listening to that. Still don't. Uh, and so when, when I remember going out to sit in and, and on like your gigs and like Barry's gigs and like sitting in with uh, Pat and stuff, and I would go up there and do all this avant-garde stuff and like, I would just, I just felt like I would make the vibe weird. Do you remember it ever being weird or was I, I guess what I'm asking was how bad was it? How bad was it when yeah. I came up there in cargo shorts and screamed all over the place? <laughs> you, know, you know, to be perfectly honest, if we were to play back the tape, I would just, I would be so concerned about the way I sounded that it wouldn't even matter. <laughs> But that's the great thing about musicians. Everybody's so wrapped up in their own crap. They don't, it's like, oh man, were you, were you stepping in it? Yeah, I was, I was totally obsessed with myself over here. You know, I think, I think Ellis Marcellus said one of the, a great, a great thing. And, and, um, it was, you know, it's not so much, it's like, the question is not really like, how do I sound in this moment? It's, it's really is like, have I improved since the last time I played? <laughs> and hey, grateful for it <laughs> yeah and so i i mean i i honestly like i totally identify with so much of what you said like man you know i definitely consider myself to be i i might not come off as this way but i am an introvert times a thousand and going up on stage just makes me like yeah have that blackout moment too where i'm just like okay cool there was like a but did i just play what the fuck just happened <laughs> kind of thing um but yeah, with, with the, the, the way I always look at it too, is like, man, you know, there's always room for improvement. And I'm just glad that I started so far down the totem pole that I have all this space left to get better. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But, uh, man, so, I mean, so again, like, so, so back in the day, you, yeah, you, I mean, you were making the hang. I remember you coming out to Delphio, uh, Delphio's gigs a couple times. And, uh, I mean, I, you kind of, I, I, the last conversation we had in person, you were like telling me about this epiphany that you had about your musicianship and your playing. And I was wondering maybe if you would be able to like kind of elaborate what, what kind of over those years like transpired for you. So what I learned was, um, and for, well, just, okay, just hit me. Who, who listens to this? What are these, uh, is it mostly students or like, is it adults or like? Yo, we have, we have so many people who listen to this podcast. I feel like the last time we checked it, there was like 2000 monthly listeners. Oh, um, we have, Amazing. yeah, we, we have students, we have, um, like musicians who are checking it out. We have a lot of people in the industry who have been listening to this also. So, I mean, anyone that you, you speak on, they're going to have some type of, relation to your experience or Ooh, through cool. and, and, and these are folks who know about music you know 
Totally, yeah. Yeah, awesome. So, um, but yeah, so like I would, I would go and sit in at Delphio Marsalis's big band gig. Um, Greg was playing uh, clarinet and tenor and crushing it. And then I would like, you know, sit in for a song and then like hang around as you do, as you're trying to like make the hang with all these, with all these musicians that you like want to be friends with. And you're like, oh my God, you're the, you're the, you know, the best clarinet player I've ever heard. Can we just hang out? <laughs> can you like, can you just like lick a reed for me? Or like, what can we, can we, can we work out? Um, and you told me one time, this is a side note, but one time you told me, we were talking upstairs in that little balcony at Snug and you were like, you were like, yeah, man, like the most important thing is just to keep the gig. And that has gig, 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 gig. And that has echoed in my mind for a long, for just just a lot. I think about that. It's like, man, just keep the gig. It's kind of like just put one foot in front of the other, you know? It's like, man, the gig may be terrible today, but like, just keep that gig. Like, you know, see what happens. And so that was, um, that, that was formative for me. Um, oh, man, you, you asked something, and then I, and then I said that. It is funny. Some, someone gifted me that advice too, because I was feeling very frustrated on that particular gig years, years, like way at the beginning of my stint in it. And it was actually Fred Sanders, the piano player. And he, he told me that Art Blakey said, you know, he said, he's like, I was like, Fred, I don't know what to do. Like, sometimes I feel str- frustrated. Should I quit? Should I stay or whatever? And, and Fred was like, you know what Art Blakey says? His ride symbol says, keep the gig, keep the gig. <laughs> <laughs> I never forget that. So I kept the gig. <laughs> That's so good. And it's the truth because it's like if you stay, it's just I've I've learned nothing if not that if you keep doing the same thing, things around you change. And maybe mm. that's what I learned about my musicianship. It popped back in um, through the years. You know, I like I would so I would go out and sit in. I'd 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 learn the Ellington stuff. I'd shed the Ellington stuff, and I'd and then I'd I'd play that stuff. I'd I'd make gigs where I was playing standards a lot. Um, because of UNO, I had the opportunity to display and present a lot of original music. That was really good. Um, but man, you know what? In, at the end of 2013, I discovered making beats in, in the UNO computer lab. And that really changed a lot for me. Two things that year. I saw Robert Glasper at the Civic. He was touring with the Experiment. It was the original lineup. It was uh, Chris Dave, Derek Hodge, Casey Benjamin on saxophone and him. And... That really changed a lot of stuff because I checked it out. I went to the concert with um, Peter Varnado and we drove back home afterwards and he w- we were talking about it. And, you know, he was like, he was just, you know, really drove home to me how contemporary that music was and how and I and 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 how uh, and how indebted it was to modern production and stuff. And actually, the reason I started making beats and went so hard was um, Ellis Marsalis came to UNO. He kind of made a yearly visit and and you know gave a gave a talk to the whole department and he incur he he in so many words he said to develop marketable skills to the kids mm. and in so many words he said that those skills were not standards you know he was like he was like learn like marketable music skills and to me when i found that midi lab i remembered his words and i was like oh man like this is this is like something i could do and I could check this out. And that really drove me away from, all right, I, I, maybe I don't need, maybe I don't, um, maybe I don't want to pay the price of admission because the, the language uh, and of, of the tradition of jazz. And I mean, Ed Peterson one time was like, he just called it that. He, he said, man, the price of admission for this music is so high. And mm. like people who want to pay it, pay it. And people who can't pay it, 
uh, like it's they they might spend up their whole lives trying to come up with it and it's it's just uh and i was like you know what i i i think i want to go in a different direction um because i was not i was not digging gigging at all mm. and so i uh i started producing um that's around the time when i um started playing with tank i started playing at a few churches and then i played at the keyboard player at norm's church and he brought me in the fold um and then i had it was i had i had this like weird new um this it was weird new to me this like beat making thing and i i kind of kept it like a secret to myself you know um because all we talked about in school was like was like standards and you know just like you know jazz nerd stuff and it which is cool but i really i really developed into a um i don't know i developed into i knew that i would be better able to do something um a little bit different excellently than something that people are already doing at the highest possible level any better did you did you feel a lot of pressure about like playing more like into the say Ellington style of of this music versus like going like a more contemporary Robert Glasper way or did, did you feel pressure to do that or did you just were you like you know what I'm good I, I don't have to do that how, how did that all work yeah no I, I mean I went to UNO there was the pressure was negative you floated if you stood still at UNO um mm. there was uh there was there was not a um no I didn't have anybody uh who was like making me feel bad uh so I was I'm really grateful for that um also I didn't um you know there are some people who who are like uh real puritans and might give you some some crap for it but that was that was few and far between and honestly usually those people aren't very good um like they're just usually not the best uh, musicians because they're focused on the wrong thing so hmm. yeah no i didn't i didn't feel i didn't feel any pressure man it's funny that you you mentioned that ellis story and when i was at loyola i would take lessons with ellis and i was his last lesson of the day so i would always walk him to his car and we had the same conversation every week and the conversation started with so gregory what else are you good at? <laughs> and then the conversation segued into like, well, how are you going to make a living? <laughs> you know? And it was funny because like, I took that, I took that conversation so personally at first, I was like, man, this guy is implying that I can't play or, you know, like I'm never going to be able to make it as a musician. But in fact, I think he was he was speaking to like what you're saying too. The price of admission for this type of music is 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 very high, and it costs a lot of it takes a lot of hours in the practice room and on the bandstand to 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 be admitted. But also, once you're admitted, how are you going to make a living? <laughs> That's like you know just just being a highly revered in this community oftentimes doesn't solve all of our problems or all of our needs as people. Um, so it's it's I appreciate when you have teachers like that who can keep it real, sometimes it is a little heartbreaking. Um, but, but yeah, it is rough out here as a, as a musician and, and it can be, um, you know, it's, it's not just uh, Hey, you can play changes. Congratulations. You're this, the end of the story. You know? Yeah. But in our heads, we're like, wait, they give us money after that. Right? Like I nailed the changes. You, yeah. yeah? Matt. So you, you're actually, maybe we can use this as a, as a segue into, um, you, you've actually been part of, I would say, one of the, the, the most fun and cool bands to follow and uh, probably going to end up making a huge mark 
like like you guys are gonna make a, an entire mark on in the the world music community. But you all came from New Orleans, and so how did you get started with Tank and the Bangas? And um, yeah, how did that the whole thing start? Oh man, thank you. That is extremely kind. Um, I hope I hope that happens. Uh, I remember right when I joined the band, it was it was in that the uh, like the band room at UNO, and I was like I was like I had just joined the band, and I think I had just like officially they'd brought me in as like like a fifth member of the band and i was like whoa i was like hold on i felt like i felt like a basketball star okay i was <laughs> like i've got my contract <laughs> um and i remember telling somebody in in combo we were like playing a standard and i was like i was like yeah i just joined this band tank of the bank it's pretty good probably gonna be famous <laughs> and it's like you know i'm sure i deserved to have my saxophone hit into my face, but that didn't happen. Um, I'm, I'll get karmically served another way. Um, but uh, I, 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 I saw this flyer in the UNO Music Building for this church that wanted any instrument, any instrument. They said, they capitalized any, I think. That's how desperate they were. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I went over there and I played and um, they were like, oh man, holy crap, like, yeah, of course. Cause I was like, I was like a, a you know, a pretty, a pretty good, I think I was a sophomore and I was like getting around the horn and had been, you know, we did nothing but practice then. So we were all much better than we are now. Uh, in college, we all had way more facility. Um, that's actually not true. I got way better after college. Um, that's not true at all for me actually, yeah. Um, but I did well <laughs> enough to get the gig at the church. And then um, Norman shows up there. He plays keyboards and Tank of the Fangas. And uh, I played there for a couple months. I actually joined another band from the bass player at that church. And uh, I'd been hearing Norm talk about this name, Tank and the Bangas, Tank and the Bangas. They had a cool business card. They were like, he sh I saw pictures of Tank and there was like this buzz happening. And I was like, whoa. Um, they were trying to play a, uh, a J. Cole song that actually sampled Hubert Laws, who is like my favorite flute player, my flute hero. Um, and so I came in and played this little sample at tips with them. Uh, and then I just, I, I, I saw the manager afterwards in the green room and I put both my hands on her shoulders and I was just like, please take me with you. Like where this is going. Like, cause I immediately, when I saw the kind of music that the uh, drummer Josh was encouraging, like really creative with like hits and changes and, and odd time signatures. But then tank had this amazing interface with the audience with words and and i was like i was like words in music whoa what because we were playing you know we we're playing four minute solos man you know burning out bomb swinging um and tank had this thing that she could do where it was really whimsical and magical and then there was this great music and i was like okay like yeah i want to be a part of this i just started hanging around writing music unsolicited you know just everything anything i could do i literally st i remember standing closer to them just in rehearsal just because no parts to play just just trying you know just doing whatever i could um and then and then like i said they, they brought me in the fold um and we we what really sealed the deal we lived in london uh for three months in 2015 and it was all of us it was like seven band members plus the um plus the woman who we were staying with and it was those eight of us in a two-bedroom apartment i slept under a vcr like this at first <laughs> um and, uh, and for the for the audience what is a vcr <laughs> well a vcr was uh i think uh my mom instructed me on this i think a vcr was it was a kind of it was a box and i just know that uh 
the Blockbuster employees caught a lot of shit if we brought them back late because they caught all yeah. money. Um, or if you didn't rewind them, that was a problem. Oh, man, don't, <laughs> yeah, no, don't do that. Um, and yeah, so I, I slept under a, a primitive, outdated mode of uh, media consumption. And, uh, and, and for three months, we really bonded. And we came back, and because that entailed also people um, uh, putting jobs on hold, putting school on hold. UNO let me let me leave um, for three months and come back, and they were super cool about it. Ed was so cool about it. Um, for everyone, uh, Ed Peterson was our saxophone professor. Uh, he, I, I did like half a chart to make up for like three months of missing school. And he was like, yeah, that's good. Like, all right, yeah. What, what were you guys doing out there? What was the purpose of the trip? We, well, we uh, apparently, Tank had been really gassed up by the people in New Orleans. They were like, oh man, you are so great. As soon as you come off the stage at your first jazz fest, they are gonna swoop you up and just send you on a plane to Paris, you know? And, uh, and obviously that didn't happen because I mean, maybe that happened to somebody, and then they said that. I don't know why they would say that. Um, but it was like, things, nobody's going to take us anywhere. The band was like, we got to make this happen ourselves. Um, that's mm -hmm. what we did. Had a few, very few gigs lined up, but then we made gigs out there. Um, and looking back on it, I mean, what a great, just what a great, uh, what a great narrative. You know, that was a really, that was a really great story um, going out there and doing that. So, so, you know, you, you mentioned right off the bat, there was like kind of, was there actually an air of like, we're going to make it as a band or what did it feel like to be in the band from the early stages? Oh man. It, I mean, I think it's, I think it's kind of like one, I was reading this interview and I think, uh, Elvin Jones said about Coltrane, like somebody asked him, like, why are you, why do you guys love him so much? Or like, why are you out here? And Elvin Jones said, you know, we, we would die for that motherfucker. Um, and I don't call Tank a motherfucker, but you know, you know what I mean? And I think that's how everybody feels. Cause that's like what makes it happen. You know, uh, that's really what makes it happen in a band is there is a, uh, there is a, 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 a locus of energy. And I think that, I think that, that is Tank, um, I, I think we be, believing in her and loving her and seeing her effect on people and then that we can help amplify that effect. I mean, that is like, that's, it's a, it's a pretty unifying force. I think that's what, uh, I think that's what made everybody so down for it. Or at least the people who have continued on the journey, there is some, some she, she's bringing something that we're picking up. Um, and, and it's like that for everybody who's, who who hangs around you know for for the band leaders out there how how do you foster a an environment of creativity and also maybe like you know getting your sidemen to be invested i, I don't want to say sidemen is it initially but but again like in any band like i play with michael and i feel the same way about him like you know i'm interchangeable mm -hmm. ultimately and i know the situations are very different here but but yeah fuck my i want him to sound good that's like literally all i care about it's like if i sound bad whatever but i want him to be great and so i was like wondering like again like in that environment when you are in a in a, in a group like how does a band leader foster that creativity and in allowing band members to be invested versus like creating that like I don't maybe like animosity towards a, a leader because they are the front man or something like that. Oh man, it's like Tank is so I I this is a bummer because I wish I could give an answer that would be applicable to other people, but uh I just don't think answers that apply to Tank apply to other folks. Mm. Uh but hope but let me give it a shot and let's see if it does. Then, you know, 
people can pick and choose. Because um, what Tank is really good at is 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 making the uh, atmosphere relaxed. Um, Tank Tank doesn't really like. She's extremely honest. So if she's nervous, she's just gonna tell you she's nervous. She's not gonna do a bunch of weird stuff to try to make up for being nervous. If she is angry, she'll talk to you. If she has any sort of issue with you, she'll talk to you. So everything is just is just right up front, which saves mm. a lot of time. Um, uh, and it also makes a very uh, familial connection because we have we you know it's uh, and that, and that cuts both ways because it can be hard to work with family, um, but it can also make some of the greatest moments possible. Um, and I think maybe. As Tank and the Bangas goes along, um, you know, I think I think if we when we look back on Tank and the Bangas, not that we won't still be like touring and playing uh, casinos and stuff, but like in 20 years when we look back on like this period as Tank and the Bangas, like we, you know, what is uh, I think I think it might be all about uh, the family and how the family dynamic makes for amazing moments and really challenging moments. Um, I don't know that because that, that's that we we operate that way. You know, we operate as a family, and we operate in um, uh, in seasons that feel like valleys, and then seasons that feel like you know the mountaintop. Yeah. Man, I appreciate you saying that because I mean, it is it is challenging to work so closely with with you know people with their own lives, and and then you have your own collective life together as as a group, and it's not always roses and sunshine. <laughs> Um, uh, Matt, speaking on like, you know, so maybe was there a moment in the band where like you felt you all had made it or was there a time that, um, I know like for me, the first time that, you know, as an outsider, when you all won the tiny desk, that was, that I felt like that like really put you all on the map. But th was there like another moment that like you all kind of like, or that you felt that like, yo, this is going to happen. Or it has happened. <laughs> it was probably like, for me, it was probably, uh, well, for me, when we got the call that we won Tiny Desk, I, f I fell onto the ground. Yeah. Because I knew about, I grew up on NPR. I I just, I knew how many listeners were on NPR. I was just blown away by, uh, I was just seeing dollar signs. Like, I was not... I not feeling spiritual i wasn't feeling uh particularly compassionate or empathetic i was just like oh i'm gonna be okay <laughs> because that happened um i had a very i had a very classic um like after college i had like a sit down with my parents and i was like i was like i just need one year and then i'll and i'll make it and i'll make it and you know and it's uh and they're like all right um and so i i um I taught piano lessons and stuff and played with Tank and the Bangas um, for that one year after college. And then we won Tiny Desk in 2017. Um, it was a it was a really, really, it was a really smooth transition for me. Um, but I just knew when we won, I just knew I was like, OK, this is going to go crazy. I didn't know. I didn't know that that would be the gift that keeps on giving because we have this like we have this thing that lives and grows to this day on the internet which is crazy like that video people people still discover it obviously not in one big swoop but it's really like a it's like a living it's like a living ep or something it's really cool um how that's still just always out there and it's and it's such an amazing documentation of the group i mean it's like it's so fun to watch and and again like you talking about how charismatic 
tank and ultimately the entire band is. But yeah, it's, it must be like such a great experience to, I mean, I, I'm always discovering tiny desks from years past and just falling in love with artists. So I can imagine that being, yeah, the gift that keeps giving. I also love that you're like, you didn't say like, man, we're going to be rich. You said, I'm gonna, we're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> the bar is pretty low for me. I'm gonna, I, yeah, I'm looking for, uh, I'm looking for rent, food, and uh, I want to um, do something else. A third thing that would make that funny. <laughs> you gotta feed your pet hamster too, and, and if you don't have one, maybe you should pick one up. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That would put that. In there. <laughs> but um, man, that's and that's 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 um, yeah, you're just gonna be okay. Is there is there a part of this journey? So so now that you know you guys are okay. What what about that experience of like making it as as a like a before during and as you, I mean I guess we're still going through it now but what was there any huge difference between like what you thought making it would be as a as a younger musician and then did that differ from actually experiencing making it It's almost like despite my best concerted efforts I was not able to avoid um like the the cliche experiences and realizations there's no way to be prepared for um uh having a problem going on stage at coachella having an amazing show and then coming off the stage with the exact same problems that is that is something that you can talk about that you can think about that you can run all kinds of mental scenarios and then when it happens you're kind of like oh all right well i got i guess i need to address myself i need to know what's going on with me you feel clearly yeah you feel yeah it's it's that's like a thing <laughs> you know exactly what i'm talking about i, I want and i want to hear it from you before i start ranting on my experience <laughs> oh man it just, i had it i had a really really hard time um because a lot of what i came to new orleans with uh was i had really bad uh bouts of depression um that I've realized through therapy and and a lot of meditation and a lot of uh, self help books, some of which are more self helpful than others, um, <laughs> but like uh, just a lot of stuff that I've done to try to because I had a lot of it felt like I had a lot of wires crossed, and so when I was experiencing these bouts of depression and and we had you know made it and stuff was this was the um, the newspaper headlines flying by section of our story, you know, science diverged, plays Coachella, goes to Bonnaroo, uh, you know, meets Chance the Rapper. Like this was the um, this was the amazing flurry, the read all about it time. Um, but but I was feeling so bad on the inside, so so bad. Um, and I, I t I've told this story on a podcast before, but I will also share it here. Um, you know, so bad that one time we were in like St. Louis or something. I, f I forget where we were. We were on tour. It was like 2017, 2018 um, kind of times. We just won Tiny Desk. Maybe it was the latter part of 2017. And I remember walking back to the venue from a dinner with the label. They had some reps out there. And I was so depressed that I was like, man, I could just, I was walking kind of close to a highway. And I was like, man, I could like, if I, if I like, you know, eight feet that way is like oblivion and I don't have to feel like this. Like I had, I had a really hard time. Um, I got through that with a lot of support from my partner, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't, it, it was so shocking uh, to have 
dreams that I had had for at that point, maybe like 15 years, uh, not solve things that it didn't fill me up the way I thought I would be filled up. And so that was a huge lesson that, that I, I, I wasn't prepared for despite my, uh, my efforts. I'd, I'd like to hear what, what you went through with that. Dude, it's crazy. Cause I mean, like literally like you're taking the words out of my mouth and if whenever anyone asks me like, yo, what, what's it like being with Michael Bublé? And it's like, yo, it's great. It's like such an amazing, it's like, it is like, God, it's such a blessing. It's such a great, amazing experience. And I'm so grateful for it. Um, but I remember, and then I, I feel like it's like also important to be very open and honest about that experience that you just said. Like, I just remember, God, it must've been like our third or fourth leg. I can't even remember. I'm sitting in my chair looking out into like 13 or 14,000 people waving their cell phones like to a ballad Michael singing and I was like well I remember having this feeling at like 11:35 sitting at Snug Harbor I remember having this feeling like having this you know just being like shit this sucks <laughs> you know and and I was like man it's like again like I'm sitting here in this amazing chair doing this amazing thing and I still am myself and it didn't matter if I was at Snug Harbor if I was at in New Orleans if I was wherever I was I was still gonna be me and I guess that was that was the first time I, I had really had that realization that the external experiences were not going to solve the internal process or experience and uh, man, I, I'm also extremely grateful to have had that experience too, to realize that, okay, maybe if I don't get the gig, I'm still, it's not going to change the way I feel about myself. And um, yeah, what you're saying too, like therapy, meditation, all these self, um, you know, these, these practices that are meant to help align us with ourselves, man, those, I feel like that is the, the journey to happiness. Now the journey to money and all that kind of other shit that might be paved through the way of getting better gigs and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's not going to solve everything. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I know that, uh, the bandstand feeling, that's what like, it's really funny you say that. Cause that is what keyed me in all those years ago, maybe like 2013 when I was like, maybe I should try a different, a different approach because I would be maybe it's a horn player thing because we are not like playing all the time maybe we have more time to uh just just get in our own way um I don't know it'd be it would be interesting mm -hmm. to see if uh if drummers have this feeling too because I <laughs> whenever I watch videos of a big band I really whenever there's like a guest soloist I love watching like like the second like the tenor player you know like the well like the second tenor player who's like doubling clarinet i love watching that guy because he's like some sometimes that guy's like real zen but also sometimes i feel like that guy's thinking like that well that could, i could fucking do that i could fucking, you know? <laughs> i don't know. yeah or, or, or I'm thinking like, holy shit, did I leave my stove on before I left for the game? Yeah, or, or yeah, or they're the opposite. They're not invested. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I got that bandstand feeling too. And I was like, man, I can't, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, play uh, 14 solos in four hours and, and play the melody and then walk away with $37. I was like, I was like, Am I? And then I felt because I was so obsessed and grew up obsessed with like 
the whole culture of what we call jazz. You know, the whole, I just loved reading folks' stories. I loved reading about jam sessions. I loved imagining myself, you know, as a fly on the wall. And I was like, and then when you, it's like reality, it's like, oh, those, those guys, like, that was like, that was, that wasn't, they weren't just like picking and choosing from a buffet of like we get to do. I get to say like, oh, I'm going to go to college and study jazz, you know, like those guys were not picking and choosing from this infinite, uh, you know, McDonald's menu. They were like, that was what they did mm -hmm. and they loved it like a marriage. It's not all, and it's not all like they knew the, the, the thing that we had to learn a really hard way. Um, they had it as a really hard way right away. They, they, it was, it was hard immediately, you know, and that's, it, it just really, uh, I was like, I started to feel way, when I realized how hard it was, um, I started to feel a lot less uh, shame and guilt. Uh, cause I, cause I, for a time I felt like I was like, am I like giving up, um, am I giving up, uh, sophisticated music? And I was like, no, I'm not giving up sophisticated music because some of the music we're playing isn't sophisticated at a certain point you know solo number six on chameleon is not sophisticated anymore so i was like well you know it's not yeah it's not like it's not a genre thing it's not a um i just i just i just knew that um i wanted to do something different from that feeling yeah yeah so man so you were talking about too like aligning meditation and you know maybe one of the challenges that i've found also you know having a very rigorous tour schedule and, and dealing with, you know, living with cats in close proximity and dealing with personalities, man, could you speak on maybe some, like, uh, some, some practices that, that you have on the road and, and things that help keep you aligned when you are in, in these like kind of stressful situations? Yeah. That exercise. Um, I, uh, I, I, I lift a little bit and, uh, and make sure to get a run in on the road. Cause that just, uh, Oh, it just makes everything better. It helps you get out the uh, the actual physical feelings that maybe uh, either got stuck as or haven't had a chance to go through. Uh, when if your feelings, maybe that's somewhere in your body, and it's at least worth a, a good workout to see if there's anything you can dislodge. Um, and that has that that has made my touring life so much better. Um, the meditation, it, just because you're you have the um, you just have pressure on you at all times um, when you're on tour from from everybody else. Um, you know, you have a tour manager, and you have uh, and you have your band leader, and you have a musical director. You know, and you have uh, there's so many things going on that it's like sometimes that it's 20 or 30 minutes of just sitting quietly or as quietly as you can. Sometimes that is the only in between your ears is the only space you have to yourself. Um, so yeah, meditation and working out are what what gets me through. Um, I also I, I I prioritize like alone time, like walking around cities, you know, taking a walk. Um, yeah, yeah, and I also I try to make sure. And any any young instrumentalists listening, uh, I'm going to tell you something that Kirk Whalem told me when I was 16. He said, "Practice now, because you're not going to have time later." Ain't that the truth? And 
so true. Do all your shedding right now because it gets this much harder as you go. And if you how depending on how young you are, if you haven't done seventh grade yet, that's that's a an exponential growth, and it only gets harder as you get older. <laughs> and uh, and it is the truth. So I try to practice too at um at sound check and load in, much to the chagrin of my other bandmates because you know. <laughs> Are you that guy? You the guy? You the guy always practicing? Oh baby, I'm that guy. You know, it's because because the instant gratification instruments don't understand that horn players have to maintain a muscle to even produce a sound. You know, you touch a piano, yeah. you get a sound. You touch a guitar string, you know, you get a sound. Um, you you show up to a saxophone or a trumpet with no preparation, and uh, you'll get a sound, but it's not going to sound like a saxophone or trumpet. <laughs> Yeah, dude. And I, and I feel that too, like again, being on the road and, you know, long drives at night and just not always feeling a hundred percent physically. And, you know, the, the practicing has always been one of my self-care rituals on the road too. It's just been at least I have this hour to myself and to practice and to get in touch with long tones and, you know, get my vape, get my vibrations in line too. <laughs> you ever practice in the, in the cars, whatever car, vehicle you're in on tour, you ever practice in there? You know, I, I have gone back and practiced on the bus when we are at a venue because I've been fussed at many times for practicing. You know, we have some 18-wheeler rigs, and so the drivers are sleeping in the rigs while we're getting ready for the show. And I have, like, I've pissed off a lot of people. And I, and I feel tremendously sorry because those guys are driving all night overnight and sleeping during the day. And then my ass is, like, playing Charlie Parker licks and 12 keys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a weird thing about like, you just, you feel like you'll be doing something at a really high level, but somehow you feel like the uh, the biggest problem on the tour. <laughs> You're like, man, I'm ki I'm killing this. I'm I'm like, uh, I'm guys, don't you care that I'm developing my t oh, tomato, you know? <laughs> It's rough out there, man. And, and sometimes, again, like with the dealing with personalities, you got to practice when you're in seventh grade because when you're on the road, you just got to make the gig because there are other people doing their jobs. And sometimes you need to stay out of their way so they, they can do what they need to do to make you sound good. What uh, does, uh, does, does Buble encourage practicing or is he like eight, eight 18 wheelers in front of you guys? Um, you know, I, I actually I haven't had a conversation with with uh, Buble about practicing, but you know, the, a lot of times we get to we're in these giant venues, so there's always a nook to to nook or cranny. It's like, you know, when you're when you're playing in a basketball arena, sometimes I'm up on the third floor and the bleachers practicing. <laughs> that is crazy exactly place. what I do. I walk as far away as possible. Yeah, yeah. I used to do that in London. I would walk thirty minutes, thirty forty five minutes out into like farm country. At, down this uh, green path and I would find this spot that was kind of tucked behind some trees. I had a lot of crazy stuff happen to me practicing out there. Little little British kids would ride by on their bikes and tell me to shut up. Like I'd <laughs> and they'd be like, shut up. And I'd be like, it was so mean. People would yell stuff at me from houses. Uh, this guy tried to sell me heroin. Uh, it was a really shady spot, and uh, I was I just, but he was he was really nice. He he loved um he loved the stones, but he was very sensitive to that they had stolen uh borrowed from uh like like blues music, you know. And he was very sensitive to that. He was like, oh yeah, you know they, uh, they gotta give credit where credits due. I, I love the stones, but like America, that's where it's at. Uh, would you like some blow? Uh, oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> And, and to all the young listeners out there, I will tell you this. 
the extracurricular activities on the road, such as the drugs, the alcohol, the, you know, the whatever else you can imagine. Y'all, moderation, please. Like that, that, that will straight up destroy your fit, your physical body and it'll destroy your mind. Like that's also another self care thing that I learned after being on the road too. It's like, yo, you can't party every night. Like you got to get some sleep, get some sleep. Sleep is the key. Um, but yo, Albert, I'm sorry, we're coming up on time here. And I just maybe, what do you have coming up in the next couple of months? Where can we see you play? What, What do you have happening? Tank in the Bangs is going to Dubai, man. We get what? to go to Dubai. Yes, we are so excited. So that's a, that's a big thing that's coming up. Um, with my band Sax Kicks Av, uh, I'm I uh, produce in that band, and uh, it's I'm a partner uh, with a rapper named Alfred Banks. We just put out a uh, video for our song called Kaleidoscope. It's really awesome and wonderful, and and just a beautiful thing, and people are really digging it. Um, I also have uh, my girlfriend. Callie has a project called Thelia, and uh, mm-hmm. I produced uh, an EP for her, and uh, she'll be uh, putting that out in the next few months. So there's just a ton of music coming out. Tank of the Bangas uh, has new music um, ready to go. We're just uh, uh, you know trying to figure out exactly the best way to present it. Um, so we have uh, just a ton of stuff. Uh, we're just like holding like all kinds of lottery tickets. It's a really, really good feeling. You know, we have a whole bunch of music and stuff ready to present. Um, but also, you know, wintertime for me tends to be a time when uh, I make a lot of stuff. And then and then when it's warmer, you can go have fun. It's not stuff. a good time to be outside. Stay inside, shed, stay warm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, man, one last question. If it, just do you have any advice for young cats who are looking to do what you do and uh, who, who are looking up to you and saying one day, man, I want to be I want to be like Albert. What, what what do you have to say to them? Yeah, keep it keep one one foot in front of the other. Um, I will share a quote that uh, uh, guides my life, and that is uh, from who who just passed the the late uh, General Colin Powell. Yeah. Uh, Perpetual optimism is a force multiplier, um, and what that means is everything you encounter in any field, in any area, angle. Uh, aspect or facet of your life everything is more powerful more effective more resonant more in line with who you are um, if you approach it with a solution oriented mindset Um, and that means that you have to take a lot of responsibility so take responsibility too Um, okay yeah let's we'll make a list okay perpetual optimism is a force multiplier responsibility you got to have that um, because you'll have to take accountability for a lot of stuff. Um, as as you are optimistic, uh, you will also find yourself in a lot of positions where you are uh, interfacing with people who are not optimistic about the possibilities of a situation because a lot of creativity is taking a risk. So I encourage you to take the risk. Be optimistic. Uh, take risks. Yeah. that'll it, It'll get you through, you know? Um, also, also, manage your expectations. That's a good one. Because um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, yes, button, wrapped. Manage your expectations, perpetual optimism. I love it. Um, yo, thank you so much for sitting down with, I was going to say us, but it's just me this evening. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your story. 
uh, with myself and our listeners here at the Working Artists Project. And man, just as, as a cat who has been watching your story unfold from the sidelines and, and, and again, like, you know, bro, the, the biggest congratulations and admiration and respect and just, man, I'm so happy for you. And you've been such a great influence to all the cats out there and, and congratulations to, to, you know, to tank and all the cats in the band for, for you all's success. And again, like musically speaking, you all are doing something that hasn't been done. And I, and I feel like, bro, y'all are bringing new Orleans to the world and new Orleans is not only just Louis Armstrong or, any of those other stereotypes gumbo and stuff you know like y'all y'all are the modern day thing so bro i, I just have the amount a huge a huge amount of respect and admiration and i just wanted to thank you for for being you and sharing that with us thank you so much i look up to you literally and <laughs> uh you're one of the first folks that i i met and i was like all right that's the that's the level you know i want to i want to get to and i'm i'm working on that um Trying to get that major scale down, but after that, I'm on your, I'm I'm on your tail, man. <laughs> I don't yeah. doubt that, man. <laughs> but dude, Albert, thank you so much, and uh, yo, y'all listening, thank you so much for tuning in this week uh, to the Working Artist Project. And uh, next week we'll be back with another episode, and we'll have our Darian Douglas back with us. So with that being said, I'm Gregory Ajid, and we'll catch you all later. Peace. <laughs>